you know, there will never be a business like this again. You know, we are providing compounds that change human consciousness to the point where people are capable of interacting with their subconscious, with what they deem to be God, uh, with possibly what, you know, what they claim to be their past lives or future lives. You know, there will, there will never be a product uh, again and a market that deals with a compound uh, or anything that is just so powerful in its ability to change human consciousness. Hello, you lovely people, and welcome to Conversations with Bacon. I hope you're all doing well. I hope you're all safe. Um, just a quick reminder, my new book, People Powered, How Communities Can Supercharge Your Business Brand and Team, is out now. Go and check it out. But more importantly, I am thrilled to have Marie Kazan on the show. How are you doing, Marie? I'm doing wonderful. How are you, Jana? Oh, just, I'm, you know, doing great. I'm thrilled to have you on here. Thank you for joining me. So as usual, let me go through the rap sheet, because your rap sheets, I would argue, a lot more interesting than most. Most so, uh, so um, you were a uh, you were a research and development intern uh, at, at Takeda Pharmaceuticals, where you were revamping predict revamp predictive in silico mutagenicity uh, software to evaluate toxicity of developed compounds. Just to be very clear, I know everything that you're talking about when you read <laughs> when you write something like that down. Uh, you went on to be a business development and innovation manager at IBM in Ireland. Uh, and then you were working as a research assistant on Tensegrity Robotics, which I believe is like a different style of robotics. It's uh, more like kind of pieces connecting together. You can probably explain it better than I can, but it's uh, using vibrational motors uh, as opposed to using traditional robotics. Um, and then you went on to be director of growth at Bell Curve. Um, you were a digital market and strategy consultant with Human Rights Watch, which I think is awesome. But what brings us together is you're the founder of Tabula Raza Ventures, which is um, a VC uh, that's really focused on psychedelics. And that's why I thought you'd be super interesting to come on the show because we had a quick call and, and, and I didn't know anything about this. And I think our listeners would love this. So yeah, you've had quite an interesting career. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. I've been uh, I've been pretty lucky to kind of explore a lot of spaces, I guess. But yeah, especially the last five years um, have been full of kind of uh, more counterculture, controversial, uh, taboo type spaces. And uh, yeah, it's just been uh, yeah really wonderful to contribute. Yeah, well, it's you know it sounds like a lot of fun. Um, so psychedelics, you know, I think uh, probably for a lot of people listening to this, and certainly when we first connected. Uh, I think they, they think of psychedelics as these like mind altering drugs that their parents did in the seventies. And, uh, and, and obviously I've got to provide this caveat before we, we get into this, you know, uh, you know, with any kind of drugs or anything like that, people don't break the law. And if you're going to take anything, talk to your doctor first, but give us a little bit of background around psychedelics and why this is something you're interested in. Um, I'd like to get to the VC bit a little bit later on, but give us a, give us a crib sheet around psychedelics and their role and their function and all the rest of it. Yeah, definitely. So uh, I think what most folks are unaware of about psychedelics in general is that we actually have decades of research um, going back to the 50s and 60s, but also modern research over the last 20 years that really shows that psychedelics are some of the most effective compounds we have to be able to um, at least reduce, uh, if not have some sort of curative property uh, when it comes to trauma-based mental health ailments. Uh, so things like PTSD, things like depression, um, even eating disorders. Uh, there's one company I know that's working on inflammation. Um, so we have basically these decades of research that are all focused on using psychedelics like LSD, like psilocybin. Psilocybin is the active um, compound uh, that makes mushrooms, magic mushroom psychedelics. So THC is to cannabis what uh, psilocybin is to mushrooms. Um, oh, I see. Right. Yep. Uh, MDMA, uh, you know, the street name Molly, uh, ketamine as well, and then many various indigenous plant medicines like ayahuasca, San Pedro, peyote. Um, and yeah, uh, so there's just a lot uh, of research that's been done on the space and a lot of uh, research that's actually making its way through the FDA approval process and is already accessible. There's more than 100 ketamine clinics within the United States, and people are going for treatment-resistant um, depression therapies with ketamine infusions. So, yeah. 
So, so I, I, and again, to say that I don't know a lot about psychedelics is is a vast understatement. Um, when, you, when you think of marijuana, right? It, it's a it's a plant. Um, um, where, where where does psychedelics come from? I mean, we know of ma- magic mushrooms, but these other things that you're talking about are they all na- are these are these natural plant based things? Are they chemicals made in a lab? How how are they made? Yeah, so some of them are synthetic, some of them are organic, um, some are extracted, like yes, psilocybin out of mushrooms. Um, LSD is, you know, a really light synthesis process, so it's actually mm. um, an extraction from a fungus uh, that is then, uh, you know, has a synthetic process that it's coupled with um, to be able to actually get the final result. Um, uh, MDMA is purely synthetic, uh, from what I understand. Um, and then there's kind of just like pure uh, whole plant um, kind of medicine. So peyote, um, San Pedro. So those are cacti um, that you uh, can either consume or drink. Um, there's also, uh, you know, pretty powerful compounds like DMT that are found um, in uh, not only plants, but also in uh, the uh, frog's venom where it's, uh, you know, most most typically talked about and known from there's an episode of uh, Hamilton's pharmacopoeia that talks about it. Um, but yeah, so a variety of different places. Frog's venom. It always makes me wonder how people find this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I, I often think about this, you know, when, you know, when you think about how people discovered food and I, and I often think, you know, which genius was sat there and watched an egg fall out of a chicken and thought we should probably eat that. you know there's some there's some brave heroes in the past who've tried these things is there much of a different in difference in terms of the uh the effects or the um this the like the positive effects or the the side effects and the dangers when it comes to the 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 synthetic and the plant-based varieties of psychedelics yeah so there's um there's a lot of kind of internal uh to the communities the psychedelics community controversy more on the community side than on the researcher side um, talking about kind of synthetic versus organic, uh, I would say that you know really the the rule of thumb is uh, set and setting. Um, you know if you're if you have a good mindset going into the experience, if you're in in, in a safe environment, um, if the protocol that's being practiced is you know well developed and safe, then really you know whether it's synthetic or organic, I don't think makes that much of a difference. But different compounds are better at treating different ailments. Um, MDMA is better at treating the, at, uh, treatment resistant PTSD, for instance, than psilocybin is at least from what the research has preliminarily showed us. Um, whereas psilocybin seems to be better at, um, treating treatment resistant depression or has been at least studied, uh, clinically to, to be more effective in that way. Ibogaine, which is, um, I believe actually a, a bark of a tree, um, that's found in West Africa, I think mostly in Gabon. Um, is uh, very effective for um, opioid addiction, for basically eliminating opioid addiction. Um, and it's known to be one of the most difficult psychedelic experiences. It's like 20, 20 hours long of like your ears ringing and you know um, oh, wow. <laughs> people drumming around you to keep you in consciousness from at least some of the tales that I've heard. But it is very, very effective for healing as well. Sounds like going to a Rush concert in the seventies. Um, <laughs> so, so when when um, you mentioned, you know, there's these different psychedelics, and they have, um, you know, some of them are more effective in, with certain mental health challenges, like depression or, or PTSD or whatever it might be. I'm curious about how they figure that stuff out because I imagine that, you know, you have. I mean, we, I think we saw this to a significant degree with marijuana, right? Like this was um, a drug that people, many people would take recreationally. And then there was hypotheses around the benefits on whether it's arthritis, whether it's other things. And of course, now we see there, there isn't a day goes past when somebody s- seems where somebody says, you know, CBD can benefit this and this and this, and it's become this miracle drug. Mm-hmm. Um, how do they scientifically, how do, do the folks involved in this figure out what works well for for different conditions? Yeah, well, I think that there's a really major difference between cannabis and psychedelics. Um, I do think that cannabis, like this is a personal thought, this is not something that I um, have research on, but I do think that cannabis can actually be used as a psychedelic kind of through the process of psychedelic-assisted therapy to gain some of the same results as more traditional psychedelics. Uh, but the, the biggest difference, I would say, in between the two ecosystems is that psychedelics actually has, you know, a very long history of, uh, you know, clinical um, research behind it. It has very robust research behind it over the last few decades. Uh, 
you know, everyone from the University of Toronto to Yale to um, Johns Hopkins have released many studies uh, heralding the effects of these um, uh, of these compounds and have extremely robust and credible research to, to really be able to back it. That just wasn't really the case with cannabis coming into it. Oh, um, right. So I think that there's, you know, cannabis is still very much at the beginning of seeing what can it do when it is paired with therapy, when it is used in a variety of certain ways. Um, and it's difficult to say, I agree with you that, you know, whether the CBD rush, you know, can really cure everything and, and is great. Right. Um, some of the data that we've actually seen uh, shows that some of those claims are, uh, you know, unsubstantiated. And not only that, actually, the, the opposite of what they claim, I think that there was, um, you know, data run, there's a company in the psychedelic space that ran data on, uh, you know, the intersection of um, CBD, I believe, uh, or just maybe uh, whole plant cannabis and, um, and the flu. Right. Uh, and they basically showed that, yeah, it's actually um, weakens your immune system to be able to fight it. And so hmm. you're better off, at least for Corona, um, you know, staying away from from cannabis. At least that's what their data showed. Was it a clinical trial? No. Um, but it was right. one of the more data-driven approaches to be able to show these things instead of kind of just hearsay and anecdotal evidence. Yeah, it strikes me that with, a, you know, I mean, obviously, psychedelics and cannabis are two very different things. But it strikes me that uh, with the cannabis thing, there's 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 a, like a cannabis culture, right? And it struck it struck me that the culture of cannabis changed from kind of again back in the seventies, sixties kind of era of flower power and people just getting high and Cheech and Chong and all that kind of stuff to um, cannabis becoming something that was um, kind of the the drug that a lot of people were like, why is this illegal? Uh, people, professional people will use it. Um, you'll see people who are using it and gaining benefits from it. And the culture kind of shifted and adjusted. What is the culture of psychedelics? Because I'm sure that this is a complete stereotype and stereotypes are usually wrong. But again, when I think of psychedelics, I think of people in tie-dye t-shirts getting spaced out on a Saturday night and listening to, you know, to Jerry Garcia. Like, what, what does that look like? What does that culture look like that you're more familiar with? Definitely. Yeah. Um, the culture of psychedelics is, you know, a humongous topic. And I think that what's really important to keep in mind is there are, there are so many subcultures, you know, like, um, uh, I think that the, the idea still remains that, yeah, those, you know, folks who are kind of, um, you know, listening to the Beatles, wearing tie-dye, et cetera, is, you know, the, the psychedelic culture. But the reality is, is that, you know, there's, there's entire communities of programmers, for instance, that work for Google that are microdosing LSD on a regular basis to be able to be more effective in their programming jobs. You know, I've, I've met mm. these programmers, you know, these are kind of cohorts and entire communities that are creating their own culture of, you know, microdosing and how it can be used for productivity and things like that. Um, there's cultures that are really tied to indigenous communities and indigenous communities themselves being kind of the bringers of uh, a completely, you know, foreign culture to many people in the States. Um, and, uh, you know, having many tourists uh, go to those regions, discover those types of cultures, and then bringing it back to the States to kind of integrate it into their own practices, kind of shamanic healing rituals, especially with the legalization of ayahuasca, for instance, for religious purposes in the U.S. Um, so there's a lot of different, you know, cultures that all look very, very different uh, from one another. Um, and I would say that, you know, everyone in the space uh, has kind of their own um, you know, their own relationship with psychedelics and how they want to play it out. Some people are, you know, microdosing and being more effective. Some people are really against microdosing and they only believe in extremely high dose, uh, you know, uh, blindfolded, uh, completely, you know, in, uh, all in kind yeah, of thing. <laughs> all, all in kind of state. Exactly. Um, exactly. Like personally myself, I'm much more interested in kind of lower doses, um, specifically for commute, uh, community healing and community, um, uh, development. So basically, can you take a dose that doesn't necessarily compromise your ability to speak and interact with one another, and then be able to use that for the creation of arts and music and things like that to actually then right. be able to integrate those practices into everyday life. So, um, so, it, so it becomes a tool as opposed to becoming just a full-on experience almost. 
uh, sounds like the distinction, right? Definitely. And, and I think that that's something that a lot of folks are, uh, you know, really interested in talking about as well is, is the intention, right? So there's a whole process of intention setting before you go into a psychedelic experience. So, you know, right. wh- why are you doing this? And how can you actually allow for that intention to manifest throughout that experience? And then allow for that intention to carry through even after the process for months afterwards, um, to be able to uh, integrate it into your everyday life. And that can be a simple habit, um, that can be something more robust, that can lead to, you know, a career change or something different, but um, a yeah. variety of ways to basically integrate. It's interesting you say this, because um again comparing drugs or you know mind altering substances if you think about comparing for example alcohol or caffeine or marijuana um you know which are i mean obviously cannabis is something that's um that's in varying states states of legality in very in different parts of the world but the general view has been um you know um you've got to use these substances in moderation. Like if you go out on a Saturday night and get hammered, then it's going to damage your health. But if you go out and have a couple of drinks and it's good, it's right for you, then alcohol can play a a very pleasant role in an evening, right? It can loosen people's inhibitions and they can, they can have great discussions and all the rest of it, but it can turn people into violent lunatics and it can make people do terrible things. And that's got to apply to psychedelics, I would have imagined. And, And I think what's interesting about this is that Again, the stereotypes, I think, in most things are usually false. The, the, the stereotype that, you know, someone goes into this acid trip, you know, when, you know, in, in the use of psychedelics. You touched on earlier on, Marik, about kind of um, the role of how they're used. What would be, what, 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 tell us a little bit about that. Like if somebody is using a psychedelic and they want to use it as a, an enhancement as opposed to, you know, a Disney ride in their own head. How is that applied to the psychedelics today? Can you touch on that a little bit more detail? Yeah, so um, it, let me know if I'm not answering the question uh, directly. But uh, you know, if you're if you're looking to basically see how can you use it in a in a more intentional way that's not necessarily at a higher dose and really looking to go go in deep and you know experience things like ego dissolution, etc. Um, then typically, you know, maybe you're starting off with microdosing, and really uh, that process might look like you're taking, you know, a, a small amount of um, ground mushrooms. Uh, I, s- some people say that it should be subperceptual, so you can't even perceive it. Some people say that you should be able to feel it a tiny bit. Uh, you're not getting any sort of visual distortion, but you feel kind of like um, a little bit of a maybe not a caffeine high, but like the beginnings of you know something something brewing. You can feel something, you. right? Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, and so maybe you would take that every three days, but you're doing it with more intentionality. So you're saying, okay, well, you know, I'm, I'm having these problems with focus in my life. I'm going to take this and I'm going to really focus on meditating on focus and making sure that that's something that's really present throughout today. And then I'm going to spend the next three days integrating that, really making sure that focus is my priority. And then the next time that I decide to take that small dose of psychedelic compound, I'm going to, you know, continue to focus um, on that specific specific intention um so that would oh, be like and just and just before you go on when you say the dosing does that does that vary significantly from person to person like if you've got somebody who's like to use a, probably a terrible example if you've got someone who's you know 100 pounds and somebody who's 400 pounds does their weight does the, their gender does their ethnicity does this you know any, yeah. any of these things play much of a role in the in the in how that dosing is applied just before you carry on Definitely. Yeah. I mean, it does. uh, It definitely does have an effect. And I think that it goes even deeper than with something like alcohol. I think that your state of mind uh, has like significantly more, um, more impact. So you know, if you're, if you're taking some sort of stimulants, then your state of mind will probably not have at least in my experience have as much of a, um, you know, drastic uh, impact in terms of what the experience looks like. Um, Here, it can have, you know, extremely different, um, different uh, consequences, depending on your state of mind. So yeah, I would definitely say so. And, um, you know, there are, I I believe that there have been kind of experimented with thresholds of like, what looks like a, you know, microdose, at what point do you see the first signs of anxiety brewing in people on average? Um, And so those are, you know, 
definitely dosage just to kind of keep in mind, especially for first time experiences, thinking about, you know, really starting off slow, uh, kind of getting into it um, instead of kind of going all out, especially because everyone's bodies are different. Um, there's also chemical interactions, of course, as well with, uh, with certain types of drugs uh, and like SSRIs, for instance, um, like SSRIs and ayahuasca, extremely, you know, dangerous combination can be deadly. Um, but uh, SSRIs and LSD, for instance, uh, usually have no, no harm to an individual and actually suppress sometimes the experience of that psychedelic. That doesn't mean in every case, so you shouldn't you know, go taking twice the dose hoping that you know, the SSRIs don't cancel it out. Um, but there can, be, uh, there can be a whole host of drug interactions that can affect it either one way or the other. Interesting. That's fascinating. So I'm sure a lot of people who are listening to this, you, you clearly there's, there's, there's a lot of interesting research going on. I want to kind of get to, um, you know, the, uh, the, the risks around this because there's risks with any substance that you take. Um, but tell us a little bit more about, about, can you give us some examples of, of some of these tests or these trials? So for example, you mentioned PTSD or depression, what is the data looking like? Can you go delve a little bit deeper on the role of the psychedelic and, and how it impacts somebody with one of those conditions? Yeah, definitely. So there's a few levels that we could talk about this on, uh, you know, just kind of the hard numbers of, of reduction, the kind of, um, you know, uh, philosophy of why these things might be effective, and then kind of the uh, neurochemical, biological consequences of taking a compound like this. So there's a lot of different angles. I'm probably, you know, much more uh, philosophically, um, you know, capable of speaking to these things. In terms of the numbers, you know, some, some general numbers are, you know, you're getting rates uh, when you're using some of these compounds like um, ketamine or psilocybin for things like alcohol use disorder, you can get reductions and, you know, 80% of patients will not experience any symptoms of alcohol use disorder, uh, over the next three months, for instance, and that can go on wow. for significantly longer, um, you know, for, for, you know, one year, two years of time as well. So some people herald them as more curative substances, which, you know, is, is inaccurate. Um, you know, they last for a while, but to say that it really cures someone, I think is, um, is spinning the information in a, in a, you know, uh, inauthentic sort of way. Um, but yeah, you're getting, you're getting extremely high rates of individuals who are never, you know, uh, over the next three months, uh, six months, year experiencing those types of extreme symptoms. And so people who had PTSD um, are able to, you know, go back to their normal day-to-day -day lives. Um, and there's a few documentaries out there uh, that kind of discuss these things. They're escaping my mind right now, but I'll make sure to um, send them over to you and uh, you can post them up too. I'll put them in the notes for sure. Yeah. That's really interesting because, and this doesn't surprise me, and we're discovering things all the time about the role of these different substances in the world. Let's talk a little bit now about the, um, just to obviously look at the other side of the coin, like what are the risks of these? You know, I mean, are there, is there enough data to talk about long-term effects and risks, which I think people often worry about with any kind of, you know, any kind of drug or substance that either becomes legalized or becomes in common use, but also what are the short-term side effects of this when when people are using these different psychedelics and are they common across them because you mentioned lots of different types of psych psychedelics definitely yeah so you know there's because there's such a variety of different compounds you know each one has its own risks uh, that are associated with it um you know mdma maybe not as um you know if you have a history of heart issues um maybe you know more uh, more of an issue than um psilocybin for instance but even with long term use of psilocybin and lsd i think that there have been um some in early indications at least uh for if you're you know lifelong users of psilocybin regular users of psilocybin especially like with things like microdosing becoming more of a um kind of um part of culture there are uh, there are some um there have been some preliminary uh, showings that, you know, heart, uh, heart problems specifically are some of the things that you can see. Um, in regards to higher doses uh, and um, kind of more broadly speaking about these compounds, uh, I think that the biggest things to watch out for is if people have histories of bipolarism, um, if they have a history of schizophrenia, um, yeah, bipolar disorder and schizophrenia, those are the two big ones to, to watch. Uh, you know, you can really, even with lower doses of psychedelics, kind of, you know, um, actually vamp up and uh, kind of escalate. It kind of those exacerbates issues. those conditions Definitely, more? yeah, right, exactly. Right. It can, uh, it can uh, get someone to kind of cross the threshold into those things. So even if someone doesn't have that currently, but they have a family history of it, they should be very careful and 
Um, I forget the statistics right now, but yeah, depending on whether it's one parent, two parents, there's just a significantly greater chance that these substances and compounds could uh, kind of launch you into that. Um, so definitely something to be careful of. Right. And, you know, you mentioned this the kind of the, the, the philosophical approach to it. Um, you know, uh, your, your VC is Tabula Rasa uh, Ventures. And the theory of Tabula Rasa is that, is that individuals are born uh, without built-in mental content and therefore all of the knowledge kind of comes from experience and perception. It's like, uh, from a philosophical perspective, is that what, do, like, what do you feel like is the, is the impact of these psychedelics? Do you believe it's just a, we're looking at the world through a different lens? Um, do you believe that there is, uh, it's unlocking things in our brains that, that we, that we didn't realize were there? Or do you feel like there is more of a spiritual component to this kind of, what's your take on that stuff? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, I think that the efficacy of psychedelics really comes from its ability to create just greater neuroplasticity in the brain. You're able to, um, you know, take yourself and on a neurological level, actually open your brain up to just forming new connections. Um, so really, you know, kind of going along with this concept of tabula rasa and where we are conditioned for so many things, um, as we grow older, as we continue to gain inputs, our brain kind of solidifies. It gets more, um, you know, persistent in terms of how it's wired and it kind of repeats patterns over and over again. Uh, psychedelics really allow for you to kind of just open up the floodgates again and say that, oh, well, this, this piece hooked up to this piece before, but that doesn't have to be the case. And I think that it's why it really allows for there to be such transformative effects for people is because, you know, for instance, a trauma um, is really, you know, um, kind of a, uh, you know, there's a neurological firing that's happening kind of in a very patterned type way when you experience a sort of trauma, you know, that you, you get triggered by something and all of a sudden, you know, your brain reacts to that and you experience, you know, immense fear, paranoia, whatever that might be, a complete breakdown. Um, with compounds like this, you can actually allow for yourself to kind of open up those connections and see that, okay, well, you know, I can experience this input, but I don't necessarily have to have it lead to the output um, that it's leading to. And there's a different way for me to actually interpret this. And I can get to the roots of why I've been interpreting it this way for such a long time and why I can't let go of that even. So there's a lot of ability to think creatively to, to not only, you know, experience that um, in a uh, in a physiological and a biological sense, but to experience that in a visual sense, to be able to see your trauma in front of you, uh, you know, to be able to change perspective on your trauma, to be able to hear your trauma in a different way. Um, all of those things contribute, in my opinion, to the experience. There are definitely companies working in the space to remove, uh, you know, the psychoactive pieces of this and see if we can just use the compounds to basically increase neuroplasticity and still allow for some of those effects. But I personally do think that, you know, the visual components, the auditory components, the spiritual components of all of this play a key role in being able to help people kind of um, re-envision what the world looks like, what they, how they fit into the world. And it's just, you know, allows for people to experience healing or at least a new perspective on the world. Do you, do you think that, you know, when, when you talk to, for example, mindfulness experts and gurus, they, when they talk about anxiety, um, they say that anxiety is something you can never get rid of. Um, it's always there, but what you do is you change your relationship with it. And like, for example, I think it's Andy Puttacombe, who's the CEO of Headspace says, um, like visualize anxiety as a set of clouds, uh, you know, clouds that are floating above you. And if you zone in on the cloud and say that one's really gray and ominous and is probably going to be a storm. Um, or if you focus on that one's really white and fluffy and it looks like a, a puppy dog or whatever. If you focus too much on that, that's what builds the stress and that's what builds the anxiety. So mindfulness people talk about just observing those, those, those anxious thoughts and building a relationship where you can acknowledge them, but you don't try to change them. It sounds very similar with the psychedelics is that, it, you know, if you can look at a trauma as something that's, you know, you can walk around it almost like almost like a virtual reality game and you can mm -hmm. look at it and you can observe it. Do you believe that psychedelics and therefore enable someone to get rid of it? Or do you think that the trauma will always be there? But it, similar to what Andy was talking about with, with anxiety, it's more of shifting the relationship in how you understand and manage that trauma. 
Yeah, so I think that there's a key difference between something like a trauma and anxiety. I think anxiety is much more of like a feeling that we can experience, like anger and happiness and joy, whereas a trauma can be like a very distinct, uh, you know, set of circumstances or event in our life that has wired our brain in a particular way, so that like oh, the I yeah, yeah. flow of electrical signals is different. So. Yes, I think that, you know, not only walking around trauma, but actually stepping into that trauma is 100% what's encouraged throughout psychedelic assisted therapy. Um, you know, if you're doing MDMA assisted therapy, and you've had an extreme event happen, really, the whole purpose of MDMA and why it's so effective for PTSD, or at least it's theory theorized it is, is because it kind of lowers the barriers to actually allow for you to step into that trauma. Um, and that's not actually something that's too new. You know, this is this is what we've been doing with you know, SSRIs and, uh, you know, compounds like Zoloft and Prozac, really, you know, the reason why those compounds can be effective in certain circumstances for certain people is because it allows for you for at least some point of time to be able to lower the threshold to actually, um, you know, approaching your anxieties and approaching, you know, the traumas in your life. So you take these compounds on a regular basis, you know, you're in a better mood, you can actually confront some of these things, you can resolve them through talk therapy and things like this. And they eventually can subside and lead you to, you know, kind of de-escalating away from those medications and then providing those for you. I think that there is, in my personal opinion, I think that there's been very much a culture of having to stay dependent on those compounds to kind of just keep you in that state of, um, you know, uh, hyped up dopamine or serotonin or whatever else is, is really going on in your brain and not actually taking the time to step into those traumas, step into that anxiety and really be able to take it head on. And unfortunately, you know, there's just not enough support uh, given in terms of the practitioners, the therapists available to really help people through that process and, you know, help them get from one side to the other. And are psychedelics, I mean, there's all these different compounds, but are they generally addictive, um, like some other substances? Yeah, so um, it depends which, uh, which compounds as well. But generally, I would say like broad brushstrokes, they actually have the lower, uh, lowest potential for abuse out of pretty much any compound out there, even lower than cannabis. Um, so it's, it's really, um, they're safer to self, they're safer to the public. Um, we've, we've seen data on this as well than even cannabis and most definitely than alcohol. So very difficult to get, um, phys uh, physically dependent on these compounds. Of course, there's kind of, uh, you know, another, other types of dependencies that exist as well of, you know, feeling that, oh, I can't be the same if I'm not taking this specific compound or, oh, I really want to be able to experience the world and all of its color and beauty again. I, I really need you know, psychedelics to be able to get me to that state. So depending on where people are uh, in their lives, I don't think that it's an addiction of like, yes, I need this. And if I don't get it, I'm going to be, you know, um, going cold sweats and any sort of withdrawal process. Um, but, you know, there's, I think with any compound or food or person, you can get, you know, these feelings of, oh, I, I can't be myself without this in my life. And there's definitely people who experience it that way. Yeah, if you've got more of an addictive personality, which I don't even know if that's an actually scientific, scientifically proven concept, it probably is. Anything can become, you can become addicted to anything, right? And uh, and my example here would be Iron Maiden. I'm totally addicted to Iron Maiden. <laughs> They're an amazing band. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, so moving on a little bit, um, I'd like to get into the business side of things because, uh, uh, you know, you're not just very knowledgeable um, in terms of psychedelics, but you're, you know, you've got the VC and you're working on all these other pieces. Let's start at the beginning of that. And I think probably the most prescient question is, is what is the legal status of this? You know, let's, I know obviously it varies around the world, but let's just talk about the United States for now. What is the current legal situation there in terms of availability and access to, to, to these different psychedelics and, and how does the law approach them? Definitely. So, um, in regards to legalities around compounds, uh, there's, there's a few different, uh, you know, because there's such a large portfolio of these compounds, each compound has its own relationship with the law. Um, so for instance, ketamine has been legalized for treatment-resistant depression. We have more than 100 ketamine clinics throughout the United States. People are regularly going to ketamine infusion therapy. Um, you know, this is something that I see on social media. I know people who are going through ketamine infusion therapy. It's something that's being used already regularly by the public. Um, in the next couple of years, we have a couple really large, uh, kind of, uh, not even hurdles. It seems like th this legislation is going to get passed, um, in, in both sense, but we have several compounds going through the FDA approval process. We have psilocybin specifically for treatment resistant depression. Uh, and then we have MDMA for treatment resistant PTSD. And it looks like both of those compounds within the next couple of years will be federally legal, um, to be able to be consumed for those specific ailments. 
Uh, and that's actually another another important point um, in regards to the differences between cannabis and uh, and psychedelics is typically psychedelics are going through a federal FDA approval process that takes you know a decade of time. But once it is legalized, it's legalized for one specific ailment, but it's federally legal. So every state can open up to be able to then provide ketamine-assisted therapy, MDMA-assisted therapy, psilocybin-assisted therapy without, you know, having to you know, go through this kind of decriminalized state-by-state movement with, you know, sketchy people kind of uh, online giving you some sort of cannabis license, et cetera. Um, it, it's much more of a streamlined uh, official process with an intense clinical trials across the entire road. And, you know, this kind of leads back to the point of this research has been, again, going on for the last few decades, you know, and only now as we're getting close to these thresholds where, you know, in five years of time, many of the people that we know are going to be going uh, to get psilocybin and magic mushrooms for their specific uh, case of uh, treatment resistant depression um, you know, now we're actually having the media coming in and the entrepreneurship coming in and the capital coming in, looking to be able to do something with this ecosystem as it begins to unfold. Um, Fascinating. So yeah. yeah. But it sounds like the, again, I think a lot of people who are listening to this will be primarily familiar with the, probably the marijuana side of things, but it sounds like the, the key difference here is that first of all, these psychedelics won't be available for recreational use. There'll be something that you get a prescription for to treat depression or PTSD or something along those lines but they'll be available everywhere in the United States. They won't vary from Colorado to California to North yes. Dakota or whatever. So, right. so for, for the majority of them, yes. Um, there are certain pieces of legislation that are going state by state and pushing decriminalized movements. Um, and those decriminalized movements vary from decriminalizing a particular compound to decriminalizing plant medicines. Um, so decriminalized yeah. nature is a very large uh, kind of glo- uh, um, U.S.-based movement that's trying to decriminalize all plants um, from, uh, yeah, all plants. And so basically, you know, peyote, um, San Pedro, uh, mushrooms, um, all of these different compounds would become legal then, or not, not legal, ap- apologies, decriminalized then. And so there would be no, um, you know, legal repercussions for at least, uh, you know, carrying this on person, for instance, um, things like that. And, uh, you know, there are also pieces of legislation that are trying to basically pass, you know, psilocybin for therapeutic use in Oregon. That's probably the uh, initiative that's furthest along. So there still are decriminalized state by state type movements. But I think that the formal community in the space, the people who actually hold the reins and power in many ways, are really advocating for recreational use to um, really take itself slow and really, you know, develop slowly over the next 15 years um, and not just kind of allow for the floodgates to open because there are, um, you know, there's a feeling in the space that there are immense repercussions to rolling this out in a poor way and repeating uh, the mistakes of the '60s and having you know a humongous lockdown again on psychedelics. So that is a fear. Well, one of the things I love, and part of the reason why I, I really enjoyed when we first talked, um, and one of the reasons why I wanted to ask you to come on the podcast is, I like how data driven you are and how responsible you are in the way that you're approaching this as, as one member of, of this world. And to me, uh, sorry, of this community, and, and one 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 thing that, in my mind, it makes perfect sense. Like, look, if if there is a whole ton of research um, that 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 shows that a given compound, for example, can help people who struggle with depression. Which is, I'm very fortunate. I've never struggled with depression, but I know people who do, and it is a a really challenging uh, condition to deal with. Right? It 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 is incredibly destructive for many people. So to have some relief from that in a in a responsibly delivered way, whether it, you know you go to your doctor and you get a prescription, and it's and there's been the necessary research behind it. That to me seems like an eminently good idea. Um, and of course, there'll be a stigma attached. There's a stigma attached to everything, right? And 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 some people will be against it and whatever else. But I, I like how responsible this this is. So, kind of getting onto the, the 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 business side of things. I mean, you know, well, I think when when we started seeing, I don't want to make too many comparisons to cannabis because it is different. I acknowledge that, but people started it started attracting the interest of investors and it started attracting the interest of, of, of founders and, and innovators. And I presume we're, we're really starting to see that happening in psychedelics. So for example, you, you know, there's this psyched 2020 conference, which is, which is taking place. You know, you folks launched the, uh, the first incubator uh, in this space, um, which is kicking off in that area. Can you talk a little bit about 
kind of how the market is beginning to understand psychedelics and and what the business world is looking like? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, there's there's a million different pieces to talk about here. Um, I think that just again, paint some broad brushstrokes. I think that there's folks that are coming into this in a, in a really conscious way. They're they're looking to see, uh, you know, how they can bring these medicines to uh, to people um, in the most accessible way. I'm really focusing on access, making sure that every person is able to access them. That pharmaceutical companies don't step in and kind of take over all of this. There's folks who believe that the only route to being able to provide access is through the pharmaceutical route. Is that we have to take uh, compounds through this route that's uh, robust, requires hundreds of millions of dollars in research expenditures to be able to create patent portfolios that can then turn into um, you know businesses that can either be sold or develop compounds for mass distribution. So th- there's a lot of different thoughts. And then there's, of course, kind of the individual healers and practitioners and organizations that have been functioning in this space for decades uh, at this point. And are all looking to see, you know, how they can make the best of the situation and make sure that folks are being at least a little bit more impact focused and driven. Um, and for us, there's there's a lot of, you know, conversation and a lot of um, just exploration of how do we uh, create new types of business models? How do we push this and really allow for ourselves to be experimental in the ways that we approach business in this space? Uh, because this is you know, there will never be a business like this again. You know, we are we are uh, providing compounds that change human consciousness to the point where people are capable of interacting with uh, their subconscious, with uh, what they deem to be God, uh, with possibly what, you know, what they claim to be their past lives or future lives. You know, there will, there will never be a product uh, again in a market that deals with a compound uh, or anything that is just so powerful in its ability to change human consciousness, and that um, just in its that just in itself, if you think about everything that exists in the world, is nuts, right? I mean, just the just the concept of it. I think most people probably just can't even wrap their heads around that, right? Definitely. I mean, it, it, it's almost it reminds me a little bit of like this is a terrible comparison, but it's like trying to explain to people virtual reality versus a traditional video game. They're so dramatically different. And mm-hmm. I actually kind of want to get into that a little bit later on about, about how people can actually understand this because it's a kind of a, it's kind of an out there concept, mm-hmm. but anyway, carry on. Yeah. I totally agree with you. Yeah. So it's, you know, we'll never, we'll never have a market like this again um, in many ways until like you're saying VR, where we all start kind of transporting our, uh, you know, minds and neural networks into the digital and, you know, completely living uh, as just kind of these, um, yeah, digital blobs uh, and yeah, existing in that way. But um, so there's a lot to consider here. Uh, There's a lot to consider here. And there's so many things that, you know, we're already seeing kind of the, the dark sides of, um, you know, psychedelics and uh, community and culture that is either propagating these substances irresponsibly or being extremely exclusionary and not allowing for the space to develop um, in a way that actually promotes dialogue, uh, public discourse, and just, you know, intellectual debate. Um, and I think that all of those things are just so absolutely necessary for this space to, to be able to continue and grow and actually um, yeah, just have the best possible outcome for individuals. So th- there's a lot that we could kind of, you know, talk about and discuss there. But I think, you know, everyone kind of is coming to the space and, and has their own, um, you know, desire from it. Uh, some people are, you know, have really been touched by psychedelic compounds, it's really transformed them, and they want to contribute and give back. Some people, you know, see the economic opportunity and have had enough psychedelic experiences to be able to kind of market themselves as, you know, responsible, but are really looking for an economic return. Um, and some people are looking for just, you know, community and just, uh, you know, people in the space who are looking to explore their consciousness and looking to see if there's something beyond, uh, you know, our day-to-day lives, find more meaning, find more purpose and find people to be able to do that with on a regular basis. And all of those folks are, you know, building something together, which is pretty incredible. And you touched on something really interesting, Emmerich, in the, the, the ability to have a dialogue, right? Um, how, what does that look like today? Because certainly for, I think for a long time throughout history, you know, for example, I imagine this was the case when prohibition was happening in the U S the idea of just having a conversation about, about, uh, alcohol availability or around, you know, in the, in the earlier stages of, 
uh, of women's lib and around, uh, you know, kind of the sexual revolution and around the availability of cannabis, um, just the conversation can be can be stigmatizing for some people. And then gradually society kind of breaks through that. What does that look like today? And especially what is the role of politicians and government in that? Because politicians are usually the the slowest to adapt <laughs> in these kinds of situations. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, like I, I think, I think actually your um, your comparison to kind of the sexual liberation, first, second, third wave feminism is really um, is really potent uh, and, and uh, yeah, like po- poignant here um, because I think that it's you know there there are dramatically different perspectives on psychedelics and not only psychedelics but psychedelic culture, psychedelic facilitation, psychedelic community, and just society at large. You know, like you are. Uh, constantly, you know, I am constantly working with folks who are hardline capitalists, and then other folks uh, who are, you know, completely, uh, completely against um, capitalism in, in any sense, and believe that, you know, it's the sole reason for the destruction of, uh, you know, uh, of humanity and, and everything that is. So um, I think that we need more conversations between these types of individuals, and especially in a public discourse, like politicians talking, at least first starting off with, a more conversation, more of a conversation on psychedelics, and you know, bringing up the research and everything that's going on, and understanding that you know we need to be having these conversations because it's not just about bringing these compounds to the masses. It's also about you know uh, a few years from now when LSD is being used by significantly more people just because it's popularized, and uh, you know people are beginning to make TikTok challenge videos using LSD. You know, like what are the conversations happening today to see what the intersections of social media and psychedelics are? What are the intersections of politicians being able to do conflict resolution through psychedelic assisted therapy? What are all these really niche things that we think today are not really a big thing because we're still kind of unaware of the psychedelic ecosystem? But as soon as we become aware of them, all of those things will already be happening, right? And so it's really important for us to be laying the foundation today, asking these really radical questions of like, what does it look like for Putin and Trump to have psychedelic assisted therapy and conflict resolutions through that type of process? Is that even possible? Will systems for that be built? Um, or kind of on the more accessible side, you know, um, yeah, psychedelics and TikTok. Uh, and what are we going to do about that? What's the infrastructure we're going to build to mitigate the negative externalities of that? Um, How are we going to actually approach this? Because a lot of these things will be beyond our control, and the only thing we'll be able to do is set up the habits today and the conversations today to make sure that people are thinking a little bit more intentionally when they engage with these things and not talking about it is for sure the fastest way for people to kind of, you know, jump on this in whatever way they feel is best and kind of take a less educated approach um, and one that's just more excited instead of um, in control and, um, and yeah, just direct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what do you think, what would you say that right now, as we record this in 2020, what would you say is the biggest roadblock to that open inclusive, productive, research-orientated, data-driven dialogue? What is, what is standing in the way of that right now that you feel like needs to be uh, unseated? Yeah, I think that it's, um, it, it's, the, uh, it's the very poor ability of human beings to know who they can and can't trust. Um, I, I think, you know, we we are so obsessed with like rhetoric and vernacular and the words, especially in kind of more left-wing liberal culture, um, that if we hear the right words, we almost toss everything else aside. You know, we don't really look at actions necessarily. And oftentimes when we look at actions, we look at one specific case and nothing around it. We, you know, we, we look at, we look at the headline and right now there is so much happening in, you know, in the psychedelics ecosystem where people just, are not really looking at the broader experience of individuals, at the broader characteristics of people, and instead just trusting people on words and are trusting people on resumes that oftentimes don't actually indicate an ability to be able to roll this out in the best way possible, but only um, experience in one specific piece of this ecosystem. So it would be akin to saying that, you know, someone who's won a Nobel Peace Prize for physics you know, is now being asked to redesign, uh, you know, the entire system of, um, you know, scholarly research uh, and learning throughout throughout the world, right? 
you know, this person is extremely adept at being able to take one research topic, focus on it for, you know, uh, their entire lives and win a humongous award because they've made a contribution to science. But their ability to understand these larger systems, how they interplay the consequences of, you know, uh, interacting with one and not another or being, you know, aggressive in one way or another, um, make it very, very difficult uh, for the community to decide what to do. Because first off, people really trust and respect this person with the prize um, and are like, oh, well, this person obviously should know the answers to this because they have the Nobel Peace Prize in physics. And at the same time, that person is actually very inexperienced in being able to understand what the dynamics of all of this look like and how to be able to facilitate them in the best way possible. So I think that really people are looking at the wrong characteristics right now. And I think that building trust in the space and figuring out how do we build trust in a better way, um, how do we use kind of principles of decentralization, um, of community-based trust, of interacting with one another more, um, possibly in more uh, informal settings or on a more regular basis? How can we actually really tease out people's intentions and see what is it that they're actually building, even if on paper they're saying one thing, what is it that they're doing behind the scenes? Yeah, it's a great point as well. And I, I get the impression that this happens with every new area or every well when anything becomes formalized and starts becoming a structured a really structured discipline is there's different zoom levels right like in you know to use an engineering comparison you can have somebody who's used to building you know the kernel of an operating system the central piece that makes all the hardware work but does that mean that that engineer knows how to fit the whole operating system into a broader picture not necessarily but they may have all of the kudos and the the experience it seems like part of the challenge here is bringing people together from different backgrounds with different levels of experience and then having a a common terminology and a common way to work together um and have everybody feed in is going to be ultimately the way that you can bridge that gap and what this leads me to to my mind to is it sounds like there's like a science question to this um and, you know, you've, you've talked a lot today about, you know, there's a tremendous amount of research going into this and some really positive outcomes appearing from that research. But there's just a marketing piece to it, right? Is, is, is rewiring the perception of this work and also of what this is going to look like to consumers and to the end market. How do you think we, how do you think you change that, that, that marketing message? Because I do... I don't want to dwell on the kind of tie-dye t-shirt vibe that people have about psychedelics, but I do think that that's a significant roadblock in terms of getting people to understand that you can you can visualize this as a medicine that can really help you with a specific condition, as opposed to, you know, getting out of your mind on a Saturday night and, you know, eating a 16 bags of Doritos. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, yeah, I... Uh... So I guess like to just address uh, the marketing part, um, I think uh, it, I, like I'd like to just, you know, talk, talk about actually this, this piece um, individually, because I think that there's, there's been a lot of uh, kind of media um, and kind of like false education on uh, some of these things. But I think that even more so, I think we're getting to a point where we're seeing businesses um, intersect with psychedelics in a way that makes it really difficult to understand what's being marketed. Um, and for instance, you know, uh, we're seeing retreat centers sprouting up and, you know, that's something that's facilitating these psychedelic experiences and above ground settings and ways. One of the things that, uh, you know, is my concern in, in that is, you know, having this fear that we're going to get to a point where, um, you know, people are not just taking these retreat centers and, uh, you know, purely using them specifically for, you know, healing people. There's going to be opportunities to be able to basically have businesses step in and say, you know, well, you're giving people this extremely transformative experience. And I guess the most like crude case or, uh, of this would be, you know, Coca-Cola saying, well, why don't you just, uh, you know, put Coca-Cola bottles for people to be able to refresh themselves in between these psychedelic assisted sessions um, and imprint kind of Coca-Cola into their conscious and things like that. So 
Um, I think that that's just like a really important piece to, uh, to touch on in regards to the marketing and, and something that I just want to throw out there and mention that I think is another thing that people are just not thinking about as well. But could you uh, reiterate the question? I really want to get back to, to the meat of that. Yeah, I guess I guess the it strikes me that there's like a really interesting scientific piece to this, right? Making sure that these these compounds can can play a worthwhile function with some of these conditions. But then there is there's kind of two marketing components to this, right? There's there's getting the message out there to the world that psychedelics is a really interesting area of scientific study. That this could potentially have a really positive, um, there'd be a very uh, a flourishing economic um, area of interest with people building companies and and incubators and all the rest of it. So there's kind of like the marketing around that this is a legitimate thing that people should be talking about, as opposed to a. I'm not saying necessarily that it is but like as as a a fringe kind of like area um but then also once once psychedelics are in the hands of the general public and they can get their prescription to use a particular compound for depression or ptsd is there's then the marketing message to the public of this is something that is that is safe that you can use that is that is a real thing now. I think the cannabis world have been going through that where, you know, I mean, I've taken my, you know, a member of my family to a dispensary, right? Uh, he's got Parkinson's and he would never have even considered going there at any point of his life. He's in his sixties. Um, but, but I think the marketing has made him feel comfortable that this is it's legit, I guess is the way of describing it. So there's a marketing message around how the industry forms around this and evaluates and builds businesses and, and helps innovation, but then how the general public will consume those products. I'm curious about your thoughts on how to shift that marketing view and that, that perception. Yeah. Um, I mean, these are conversations that are being had within the ecosystem on a regular basis. It's, it's really, bet, yeah. really, yeah, it's, it's really difficult. Um, it's really difficult and it's really difficult to do marketing in, in any sense that's, that's responsible oftentimes, you know, and to think about it in, in this way as well is, is even tougher. I think that, um, you know, at these beginning stages, I think it's just important that like we, we take things slow and the things that we market are again, infrastructural and not necessarily consumer facing. I think it's, I think it's good for us to be able to market technologies um, that really speak to the psychedelic assisted therapy process. I think that there's a lot of pieces here um, that are worth being able to promote and show that this is something that's research driven and, you know, that we're trying to build the best infrastructure possible. I think that there are a lot of things that are absolutely horrible in regards to marketing in terms of kind of consumer packaged goods, really getting people to consume this stuff as regularly and as fast as possible. Um, and yeah, I think that there's going to be tremendous consequences from that. And as the, you know, market kind of flips to a point where we are able to kind of access these compounds in a more regular way, um, whether we have, uh, you know, a specific ailment or eventually for general wellness and therapeutic care, um, I think it's going to also be kind of a question of, yeah, what is the dialogue? What do the commercials look like? Like what, how, how do we actually, you know, interact with, um, how do we actually interact with media that's trying to educate us on this stuff without it being, uh, you know, oppressive or um, exploitative of, uh, you know, people's kind of vulnerable states and conditions and kind of selling this to them as a uh, panacea, um, yeah. and, you know, having them turn to it. Yeah, I, 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 I again, I love how thoughtful you are at taking it because, yeah, marketing can be it can be a benefit, but it can be a uh it can be a demon. Um, so as we kind of edge this towards the finish line, I'd love to just learn more about your, your, you know, Tabula Rasa ventures. And as I mentioned, you know, there's kind of the conference and there's the incubator. Can you just share a little bit about some of the work that's going on here, uh, especially for people who are interested in learning more about this? Yeah, definitely. So, um, you know, we're, we're always open to chat, really happy to, to talk to folks. Um, Tabula Rasa ventures is, is the site. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think that, you know, folks who are looking to get involved in this ecosystem, I would say, you know, really be thinking about, um, why you're coming to this space, uh, what, what is there, I think, you know, kind of having, having a few psychedelic experiences and, you know, then kind of heralding yourself as, you know, oh, like I am the voice of, of psychedelics, et cetera. And having <laughs> the guru. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like it's, it's not authentic and it's not going to serve you best, both in terms of your interactions with the community, as well as kind of your individual kind of like personal engagement um, with, with yourself. Uh, I think it's really important to start out with, you know, what are the things that are making you passionate? And maybe, maybe you want to intersect with 
the psychedelic ecosystem, not even because of, you know, the psychedelic compounds themselves. Maybe there's something else that you're really passionate about here. Maybe you're interested in, you know, seeing this as being like a really great test case for how do we build more, um, you know, accessible infrastructure for uh, health insurance. Um, uh, how do we... Um, how do we allow for communities to heal cumulatively and together? How do we develop, you know, a completely new set of um, healing modalities for mental illnesses and care? Um, and I think that, you know, coming to it with those intentions of this is why I'm here, it might not necessarily even be because of the specific compound, but because I want to help in this particular way will give you a much better start and a much more authentic entry point into into this space and allow for individuals to kind of circulate around you and, and help you out in whatever area that you're actually passionate about, even if that's, that's not necessarily, you know, oh, I want to be on the research side in the clinical, you know, providing individuals with, you know, psychedelics or, you know, creating a psychedelics brand or whatever. So there's a lot of pieces that need to go into this and there's a lot of different ways to participate. So just being authentic and intention driven as possible, I think is, is really important, especially for this space. Very cool. Well, you know, I, I, I'm thrilled that you came on. I think this is such a really interesting topic. And I, I always love just talking about kind of burgeoning new industries and cultures and worlds that are forming. And it sounds like there's a lot of really exciting science going on. There's some really interesting cultural implications. Um, there's a lot of kind of like responsibility discussion around this. There's a lot for people to dig their teeth into that I know can go way beyond this little podcast that we did today. So thank you so much, Maurice, for going coming on. And, and I'd also encourage other people to go and, you know, just definitely go and check out some of this work and, and see what's going on and learn a little bit more about it. So thank you for coming on. Yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate it, Jono. And uh, thanks to the audience for listening as well. Be well. Be well.